You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Today we're doing the first of our Best of British 2014 and I'm glad to welcome film blogger writer Stuart Barr. Hello Stuart. Hello Stuart. <laughs> yes, Very yes. Nice to be here on uh, Britflix. <laughs> right, we're going to do your your top five British films mm-hmm. as you from the, what you saw. Mm-hmm. Then we'll maybe then we'll touch on some of your kind of the the, the the nearly the nearly top five ones. Yeah. A film that rankled with you, and then we'll, as as I do with all guests, whether it's end of year or whatever, is we'll get a recommendation for you for a kind of all-time British film. Yeah, well, uh, um, all uh, all chambers are loaded. I'm ready to go. Okay, well, just a little bit of introduction for yourself. Then, do you want to do, do you want to tell us where yeah, people sure, can yeah. where well, people can um, read your blog? And yeah, I've got a, a blog that I started up a couple of months ago. Uh, I've been writing about films. Well, I've been writing about stuff on and off for uh, a couple of decades. Back in the, uh, the, the late 90s, I was uh, writing about industrial music for, for a fanzine, and then I had a long period of not really doing any writing, and so I came back to it to write about film a, a couple of years ago, primarily through um, going to Fright Fest, actually. Okay. Uh, and that sort of fired me up to sort of like, I'd been doing there, dabbling about on... Uh, stuff online, but uh, started writing for a few websites, did some reviews for, for Frightfest site, got into another couple of, of websites, and it sort of snowballed from there. And I mean, obviously, I've got a, uh, I've got a day job, but uh, I'm now at the position where um, I even occasionally get paid for the odd sort of thing. I've got a regular gig writing about The Walking Dead uh, for Official Walking Dead magazine, and uh, do some stuff on crime, film, and TV for a uh, random house site called Dead Good Books, but primarily at the moment, um, I write for Verite, which is a digital uh, film magazine that's now quarterly, mm-hmm. which is kind of an uh, it's pitched somewhere between Sight and Sound and uh, Empire, so trying to be sort of fun and, and populist, but more about independent uh, and art house cinema. And also, I started my own uh, blog. Um, 
Max Ren blog at WordPress, uh, yeah. which is uh, my unexpurgated thoughts and rantings, uh, mainly because a couple of sites I was writing for, I'd left one and another had closed, so I wanted somewhere to sort of like not stop all the stuff I'd done that was decent over the last couple of years from just disappearing into the digital ether, as it were. Mm. Okay, then well, let's uh, let's dive right in then. Do you yeah, wanna, let's go. Do you want to tell us your number five of, of your five? Yeah, my number five uh, of the British films I saw this year is 71. Okay. Um, Jan Demage, uh, first film was, uh, his first feature, um, and he won, I think, Best Director at the at the Griffiths this year. And 71 is a terrific movie, uh, and something that's too rare, I think, at the moment in terms of the British film industry, and in that it's it's an action movie. I mean, it is an, it's an action movie, it's a thriller, uh, but it has a certain uh, scale and drive that I think lifts it above a lot of the stuff that ends up going straight to DVD uh, and, and, you know, filling uh, bargain bins at Tesco. Um, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I saw that at the London Film Festival, and it was, I was just basically, it nailed me to my chair for from about five minutes in, and it just did not let up. And it has a, an incredible pace. It has an almost sort of John Carpenter-esque vibe. Wow. It looks on the surface like it could be um, a rather... Uh, serious um, film. It's set during the Troubles in 1971 where things were really kind of kicking off but before Bloody Sunday and it's about a one young British soldier who gets uh, sent with his unit to uh, Belfast has really absolutely no idea what he's getting into and things go very, very bad and the most of the film, the majority of the film is this one guy trying to escape at night through Belfast as riots kick off without getting you know, uh, getting his head blown off, um, and there's a there's a certain amount of kind of political stuff in the film, but it's but it all takes a backseat to it being a really exciting action movie, um, and it also stars uh, Jack O'Connell, who I think this year he's he's really he's come from uh, having been in Skins, and I I think yeah he was I first saw him in Eden Lake, um, and he's really come up. Uh, in the last year or two, I think uh, being obviously the guy, he's, he's about to happen. He's just had a great big uh, Hollywood film open. And, uh, you know, I think he's uh, going to be uh, a big British star. He's got a certain quality, I think, along with Tom Hardy, that a lot of the comparable American actors at the moment don't seem to have. Well, what, to say, of, what is it you think, what, what is that quality you think that he's... Well, you know, if you watch a lot of American actors now, even like that, that I really like, that they have, they're, they're still kind of, to me, they seem to be going for this sort of James Dean thing where, you know, it's all about being cool. And Hardy and O'Connell, they have uh, this edge to them which, uh, where there's a, almost a sort of thuggishness and an unpredicted... Uh, Predictability to their performances, mm -hmm. but they can also be really, really vulnerable. There's, there's an incredible scene in '71 where O'Connell just kind of, throughout the whole film, actually, he's not like an American action star. He plays a guy who basically is just reacting to things all the time. He's, he's, you know, shitting his pants for the whole movie, yeah. and he's just trying to get away. You know, he's, it's like. How many Hollywood films do you see where the hero primarily runs away from everything? That yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and there's an incredible scene where, where, like, he actually breaks down, thinks he's, thinks you know, he's about to die, and um, and it opens up in a sort of really vulnerable way that I'm not sure you would see an, an American actor perhaps doing 
Um, but also, I mean, if you go back to Eden Lake, I mean, he has a genuine edge to him where he can be really frightening. I mean, he seems like, I mean, I don't know Jack O'Connell. I never met him, so <laughs> I'm not uh, um, casting aspersions on his character. But like, he seems a little bit sort of genuinely dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, last year was starred up as well, wasn't it? And starred up, which which I still have yet to see, which uh, which many people have said is is as good, if not possibly better than Seventy One. But I mean, I thought it was a terrific, terrific movie. And uh, Demange, although it's his first film, he actually directed Dead Set. And a bunch, you know, the Charlie Brooker yeah, 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 thing, yeah. which was really, really good. So um, he's got a solid uh, TV background. Um, yeah. And also it's got uh, the primary villain, Sean Harris, who's one of my favorite British actors, uh, who is just genuinely one of the most terrifying people, I think, uh, in the British film industry. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Does he, does he speak up in this one after his... Uh, his, his... It's yeah, con- it's it's controversy with Jamaica no, in. There's no mumble. <laughs> I did actually watch Jamaica in, and I have to say, I, I can understand a word he was saying. Uh, either so I sympathise with people, but generally, I, I do really like him. So no, no, I think he, I think he's, he's. I guess he's like. Um, I guess he's, if there's an American equivalent of Sean Harris, maybe it would be like someone like Leila Dorsa or someone, you know? Possibly, or, or Brad Dourif or someone like that, you know? People are always... a character st- actor. Yeah, people who always steal the scenes they're in. You know? It's, it's like we've got, we've got two great screen Ian Curtises. There, there's his Ian Curtis and there's the Sam Riley Ian Curtis from Control. Sam Riley Ian Curtis is Ian Curtis. It's like... We've divided Ian Curtis into all the Matt and the Idol good looks, and some, and uh, you know, uh, Control got that, and Twenty uh, Four Hour Party People's got Sean Harris, and that's the twitchy, psychotic, really <laughs> frightening one. <laughs> right. So, what what have you got at number four? Uh, at number four, I have Calvary, which uh, I guess we can include that as a British film, and it's sort of like uh, made in Republic of Ireland, mm-hmm. um, but John. Uh, Michael McDonough, who's the writer-director of that, is, uh, I think it's actually uh, from London. He is um, indeed. But, uh, I, I loved Calvary. Calvary absolutely destroyed me when I saw I, I went to see that at the cinema, and uh, um, it's basically the story of a, of a small parish priest in, uh, in Ireland, in County Cork, I think it is, um, played brilliantly by Brendan Gleeson, who's titanically good in this, mm. um, who during confession at the start of the film is basically told that he's going to be murdered in a week's time as kind of retribution for uh, uh, one of his parishioners being abused as a child by a priest who's now died. Mm. And they have this idea that they're going to kill a good priest uh, to kind of make a, I don't know, um, a moral point. And essentially what the film sort of is, it was a bit weirdly billed when it came out. It had this reputation because uh, McDonough's previous film was The Guard, which is a really, really funny movie. It's very black humour, um, but, it, but it's very funny. And his, uh, his brother made uh, In Bruges, right? So they've got a reputation for having... And seven, and seven Psychopaths, wasn't it? And Seven Psychopaths. So they have this sort of Tarantino-esque edge to them. Um, and Calvary, I, then I saw it and I, I, I had the impression that it was supposed to be a comedy and uh, it's witty and there are some very funny lines in it but it is very far from being a comedy it's an extremely dark film about issues of uh, child abuse in the Catholic Church and uh, a real examination of, of how a good priest uh, Leeson's character you know, a, a genuinely decent man of faith deals with that 
you know, how, how, how does he rationalise, um, how, how can he uh, forgive his own, his own faith, as it were, for, for these uh, abuses and, and, uh, and also how he has to deal with other people's perceptions of him and how they're coloured. What uh, Calvary really is, is, uh, is a Western. Okay. Um, really, a, a sort of high noon style. You've got a lone gunslinger, a sheriff, and he's delivered an ultimatum at the start of the film, and then you've got a, you're on a ticking clock for the rest of the movie as he uh, meets various parishioners, all of whom are potential killers, all of whom are suspects, mm. uh, and all of whom are quite caricatured characters. You've got a number of... Uh, you've got, like, Chris O'Dowd and Dylan uh, Morner in it, uh, and Aidan Gillen, who's very... gives a very, very bizarre... Uh, performance that some people didn't like, but I really enjoy. The comedians are cast quite against type. Uh, Morin plays an absolutely revolting character in it. Um, it's interesting you say. It's interesting you say that 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 um, there's a there's a the, your sense is people didn't like the Aidan Gillen character, whereas mm. you describe Dylan Moran as uh, as this monster. Whereas I was more not just because it was against type, was it just did I just couldn't. I just found it hard to buy the Dylan Moran character, whereas the Aidan Gillen character certainly. The, I think it's the is it the speech he gives him in the yeah in the bar yeah that is one of the most horrible. amazing scenes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is, and it's absolutely horrible. And it's mm. like it, that. That's some of the. It's not a film with any with with, with very much um, actual on-screen violence in it. There's a little bit. There's not very much, but but it's a but the violence is all in the language. Mm. I mean, the, the opening line of the film is like being punched in the stomach. It's, uh, and that, that speech that, that Gillen gives is really horrible. Um, and his character is very weird. I, I thought, I, I really like Dylan more than it, but um, he's playing a character who essentially is full of shit. And maybe that's part, part of the thing. You're kind of not buying him because he's not buying himself. But that's probably to get. Uh, well, no, I mean, to honest with you, I mean, it's the it, for me. It was, I, I thought. I mean, obviously, you know, Brian Gleeson was 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 absolutely, you know, just absolutely ruled the film. You know, mm. as a as a performance of character. I mean, as far as taking on religion in Ireland, I mean, it's 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 in the DNA. I think for anybody that's making art. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that as it has to always be as criticism. It could you you could you could equally be inspired. To make something that tells you how it's such a positive thing as well, but the well, fact yeah, and I think that's what's interesting about Calvary is it's not a simple demolition <coughs> job on because 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 Gleason character is a good priest, you know, and he does good things, and and although he's a flawed he's a flawed character in that he's a human being, and we're all flawed. Um, I don't think that the film is being snarky about Catholicism. It's it's being. Uh, open and it's being it's being critical, but also, um, but also importantly, he came to religion as mm. opposed to he had a calling for the church from the get go. Yeah. So in a way, that makes him the perfect kind of innocent priest for mm. our um, antagonist to want to kill because there's someone that's been dogged by religion all their life, and what happened has haunted their adult life, yeah. leading, leading them to this this horrible conclusion. Whereas Gleason through his own tragedy, has turned to the church for relief, mm. which is obviously the opposite to children being abused and stuff. Yeah, and also because he's, he's, uh, he's come to the priesthood as an adult, he, uh, he has a, um, an adult daughter, 
Yes, that's who right. Is, yeah. uh, is, uh, who she should mention just because um, that's the other character who's not not kind of a, a gross caricature. Um, and, I, and when I say character, characters in it, I, I sort of caricatures. So that's not a criticism of the film. It's a very deliberate thing that he's doing in this movie. Did you think it was a little bit sort of Wes Anderson in some of its kind of notes and stuff? You know the way it was kind of. No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really get that when I watched it. I mean, I thought it was it was more connecting with uh, with kind of a classic westerns. Okay. And um, it, also, uh, the way he writes dialogue is um, has a definite edge of Tarantino to it. You know, it's it's there's a certain level at which it's there's a little bit of meta in it. You get occasional lines like very early on the film where you have that devastating opening line and the guy. <laughs> The guy in, in the confessional says to Gleason's character, "Well, what are you gonna, what, what, what are you gonna say to that?" And he goes, "Well, that's a hell of an opening line." And that's, <laughs> it's kind of a, uh, it's one of the, the moments of sort of really grim humor in the film. But it is also kind of a commentary on the sort of film that you're watching, which is very aware of, of genre and it is very much working within this kind of Western framework. But then it does, it uses it for a purpose, and I think that's where he's different from Tarantino is that. Uh, McDonough's films have a very different relationship to violence than Tarantino has. Tarantino, uh, and this is not a criticism, I love violent films, uh, sees that as a fun thing you can do in movies. And I think McDonough is, is, takes violence a lot more seriously and really doesn't see it as a good thing. And, and this doesn't resolve itself in the normal way that an American film would do, which would be to have a big shootout and the hero you know, pulls out a gun and all this you know, kind of revenge drama stuff. This doesn't ultimately do that. I don't want to go into, you know, too many details about the ending for people who haven't seen it, but uh, it's, it's, it, it goes in a different direction in a quite deliberate way. Um, and I, like I said, it, I've, I've watched it twice now, and it, it completely devastated, it emotionally devastated me both times, this film. I, th- I think it's, it's tremendous, and he's, he and his brother are really exciting uh, voices in, in, in British film so I'm really ex- interested to see what he's going to do next indeed indeed so that leads us nicely on to number three in your yeah, number three is, is Under the Skin Jonathan Glazer's I don't know what you call it I mean obviously it's a science fiction film on a clear level it's about an alien you know so yeah. but, but to me this was a horror movie and um, totally agree uh, with you and I, I think the, the the best horror movie I've seen in a number of years, there's um, a scene in it, and anyone who's seen the film knows the scene. Now, you don't even have to give clues, but there's a scene in this that is possibly the most horrible thing I've seen in any movie this year. I mean, it just completely creeped me out and, and disturbed me and uh, made me feel uncomfortable on a, a level which I haven't got anywhere near with anything else I've seen in terms of the genre this year and that's obviously that scene on the beach mm. um, but it's, it, this is a very weird film, it really reminded me of 70s British sci-fi things like Man Who Fell to Earth um, stuff by Nicholas Rogue, a little bit of Nigel Neal, where um, films were a little bit more, the kind of pre-Star Wars era where science fiction films were a bit closer to science fiction as a literary genre um, and a bit more conceptual and about ideas but also a bit more oblique and obtuse I mean it's a really odd film it's like they've stripped out it's based on a novel and the novel which which I haven't read by understanding is the novel has got all the backstory for why she's there and what's well, going no, on well no to be honest with you as far as I'm the, 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 the novel is 
is a, is more of an industrial version mm. of the film. What they've done with the film mm. is they've reduced it to one of the beings, for want of a better expression, right, right. going about their business. Whereas in the in the novel, you get the sense of trucks moving lots of bodies and. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean. In in the in the in the film, something's going on. You don't re- they don't really bother explaining what. You just you get a sense of it, but it, it's a little bit like watching, say, uh, Suspiria, you know, the Dario Argento film, mm. uh, or even more so in Inferno, the sequel to Suspiria, where people always say that that film hasn't got a plot. That film has got a plot. It, it's got a really clear plot. But it doesn't ever tell you, it doesn't join the dots for you, it never explains or sets up, it doesn't give you the context for what's actually going on, and this sort of doesn't do that as well, because that's not what it's interested in. So you've got Scarlett Johansson plays this alien who's driving around Glasgow in a transit van, picking up men who are then kind of consumed in this really horrible, bizarre way Hmm. uh, for some nefarious extraterrestrial purpose. Um, and she play, she's playing a character who has absolutely no empathy, and that's what's frightening. It's not that she's evil; it's that she just has no no conception of empathy or or feeling. And that's the horror of the film: is imagining a being with no empathy. And what happens is that during the film, she comes to to gain empathy uh, in a way that kind of becomes equally horrific but in a different direction and it's visually it's a spectacular movie Johansson is tremendous in it uh, I, I don't I really hate when people call actresses performances brave because they've taken their clothes off you know mm. um, and obviously she does take her clothes off a lot but this was a, this was a strange film I, I don't know I've had, I've had conversations with people who feel differently about this but I thought Under the Skin was one of the least erotic, titillating films I've ever seen. I mean, I just, it, I, I felt kind of, my, my skin was crawling all through this movie. I, I, I never, you know, and Scarlett Johansson is a very attractive young woman, but I just, you know, I was like, well, no, I, 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 I just I, terrified me. I was going to say, I think, I think it's the, it's, if, if you were, turned on to this because you thought, because somebody said you might be able to perv over Scarlett Johansson, I think you'd yeah. be disappointed. I think this, when, when, I think when people well, use the... more, if, if you, if you tell me that you went to see it and you did perv over it, <laughs> I'm back at the room, slowly, I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, I think that, I think the term brave, I think that the way people have used it is, obviously she's a massive A-lister who's in Marvel movies oh, and, yeah, the, yeah. No, no, and they're like... No, I think it is brave. I just, I just want to be clear that when I say I think a performance is brave... I, I no, 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 but I think, I think it's because, so. for those that haven't seen it, when, when there is elements of nudity, it is kind of a kind of flawed perfection. She's not the buff superhero that mm. we've seen her in other movies. Yeah. She's, she's, she's in, for the, you know, for want of a better expression, she is, she's laid bare, and that's kind of... You know, it's in that sense, it's more like a European movie. I remember Fright Fest this year. I watched um, Alleluia, and, and and it's sort of penny dropped with me. I don't know why it took so long, but just the kind of continental attitude towards sex and nudity is a lot less kind of titty bum guffaw. You know, for a British film, it's the first time in a long while I've seen one 
and maybe because of the like you say it harks back to f- films of the 70s that you that you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier is that it isn't a kind of guffawing at nudity it's like the nudity is part of the process of the horror of what's going on yes. not not something to get you excited by it's like it's, yeah. it's relevant yeah, and there's a there's kind of body horror element to certain scenes in the film as well, and and visually it's amazing, and it's also got this incredible score, um, the the Mika Levy music, which is a lot of what makes the film creepy as well. There's a lot of heavy lifting, mm. is quite extraordinary. Um, I've tried listening to that score in isolation. It's it's a brilliant piece of work, but it I can't really <laughs> I can't walk around at night listening to it because it just it creeps me out too much. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, your number two selection is a very different movie altogether. Yes, it is. It's Mr. Turner, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, uh, which I think is now his most uh, commercially successful film ever. I think it's it's actually made more money at the British box office than all his other movies combined. I think you're right. Um, but it has also, it also, it's become a weirdly slightly controversial film uh, in a way, and that uh, especially if you've been listening to uh, Mark and Mode, uh on on Radio Five Live talking about it. Um, but it's, I saw this at the LFF, so in a, in a room with 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 a lot of film critics, and uh, and really enjoyed the film. And I think it's a very, I think it's a very entertaining movie. Yeah, uh, I laughed a lot at this. I mean, one of this this um, Boyhood, probably the two films I laughed at most um, this year, which I didn't think was a great one for comedy. Um, but it's and, and it's done very well. It's obviously connected with a lot of people, but equally there have been a lot of people saying, oh, God, it's boring, there's no story, oh, why didn't they show us more of his life when he was a younger man? Um, anyway, to set, set the scene, basically it's a, it's a biopic of the uh, kind of the, the twilight years of uh, the life of the, the great portrait, uh, landscape, not portrait, landscape painter, uh, Turner, and uh, played... Brilliantly by by Tim Spall in this, mm. and I guess yeah, there's an element of which there isn't particularly a strong narrative, but that's not what that's not that type of film. It's it's a it's a it's a character piece. It's an examination of his life and his relationship to the artistic establishment of the day, and also very much about the creation of art and and the relationship uh, and the at that time between. Art and and science, which I think is really interesting. There's there was less of a, a distinction between the two, and there's some wonderful scenes in the film. Where there's a great scene where where Turner goes into an early photographer's studio and really really annoys the guy by trying to you know get all the details of how the process works. Uh, but I thought it was a, it was a very um, warm, entertaining film, but also, you know, a picture of, of, a, of a life with all its kind of flaws. Um, mm. A lot of the film is about his relationships with, with women, which are um, kind of contradictory. There's, there's two primary ones. There's, there's, there's with his housekeeper, yeah. um, who's absolutely, played by um, Dorothy Atkinson, who's, she is absolutely brilliant in this. She's as, as good as Tim Spall, I think. Uh, um, her performance is really awards-worthy. And then there's another relationship that he has with a, with a, a widow who runs a, a guest house in... Um, I forget where it is he's going, but it's, it's where he did a lot of his painting. And his relationship with his housekeeper is kind of borderline abusive. He sort of uses her in a 
slightly creepy sexual way and uh, she kind of tends to all his needs but at the end of his life he goes to this other woman who gets a totally different side to him where he is just a perfect gentleman okay. and the film isn't really condemning this it isn't endorsing it but it's just kind of saying look this this is this is that <coughs> You know, and uh, I, I just thought it looks amazing. It's a really beautiful film shot by uh, I think Dick Pope is the name of the cinematographer who's done all these films, and mm. it looks it looks absolutely wonderful. And Tim Spall is just terrific. I mean, he spends about fifty percent of his dialogue is actually grunting, but <laughs> you've never heard an actor do more with a, with a grunt than than Tim Spall does in this. You know, what do you uh, what, what do you think is what do you think is the reason why this has been so popular in Britain, in particular, for Mike Lee? I mean, well, is it, is I mean, it, is it, is it the perfect it's... storm of the, the name of Turner more than the name of Mike Lee? I mean, I remember going to the Royal Academy for some, some watercolours, sort of like yes. almost like fringe Turner stuff, well, and it, and it mean, was absolutely I mobbed. I mean, there's been uh, a lot of stuff about Turner. I mean, it's centenary, uh, I think. So it's mm. been well-timed in that way. Uh, and also, Mike Lee is a, you know, I mean, Mike Lee is a, is a, is a titan of British cinema. I mean, he, he is uh, one of those uh, rare directors where, you know, ordinary people know, know the name. You know, a lot of people just don't know who directs films and don't care. Mm. Um, but Mike Lee is 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 is, uh, is an, he's been around for so long. He's part of the fabric of, of sort of British culture, um, and I think this is actually one of his best and most approachable films in in some time. And not that he's ever been in a point where you would go, it's a return to form because he's never really lost his form. <laughs> um, but I think this one has just. Yeah, I think it is, like you say, it's a perfect storm. It's just all come together really nicely on this film. And also Tim Spall, who is, you know, an actor that people love. Of course, yeah. As well. Uh, and he is really, really, really fantastic in this. And everyone is just at the top of their game. And the whole thing just um, just works. So, uh, so, I mean, I, th I thought it was a great film. I just think, but there does seem to be a strange thing to me going on. And I, th I think uh, we get a lot in this country. I mean, I think the main problem the British film industry has got is that we share a language with America. You know, I, I think that is really an issue for the British film industry. We're on, constantly in competition with Hollywood, yeah. uh, who make films of a type that we simply cannot compete with. Um, and, 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 and culturally, they're not, that, they're not as relevant either. We're not... <laughs> Well, well, yeah, kind of, but they're, they're there, aren't they? They're, they're, if you go to the multiplex, that's what you get. You get yeah. American films. Um, you know, I was talking about 71. I mean, fantastic thriller, but actually quite hard for some people outside of London to actually see that film. It got a, sort of a weird release uh, mm. where I think it, it was slowly opened and then it just kind of didn't fit. I'm not sure it made the top ten, which is a real shame because it's a very commercial film. Mm. Uh, but Mr. Turner really did connect, and it played for a long time. But I think the cinema audience, the Hollywood audience, is primarily 13-year-old boys. That's who they're always chasing with their, with their big superhero franchise movies, mm. uh, which I, you know, I like a good superhero movie as much as the next guy, but there's just so many of them now. But I think in Britain, we have more of an, we have an older audience we clearly there's an older audience that's going to the cinema because films like Exo Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, for all that 
um, it's very trendy to to slate those movies when you're uh, you know a young blogger writing for you know I won't name any names but you know many of the more popular sites which focus primarily on talking about superhero movies for you know to the point of tedium don't <laughs> kind of cover these movies and I think there was a weird thing when Mr. Turner came out where a lot of sites were going it came out the same week as Nightcrawler which is a film that I'm the one guy who didn't seem to really like Nightcrawler very much but I, I grant that everyone really liked it but you had a lot of sort of like sites on Twitter saying best film of the week Nightcrawler and not mentioning Mr. Turner which I thought was kind of weird and, um, you know, I just think there's, there's this audience of, you know, 50 upwards who do go to the cinema. They don't necessarily go at the weekend or maybe go on Wednesday afternoon mm. when they get, my, my parents go, uh, and they get a cup of tea and a biscuit in the ticket price. On Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's very real, it's very real part of the cinema. Yeah, very real, and they're going to see the cinema. And just because uh, a film is not aimed at, at you know, the... 20-something hipster doesn't necessarily mean it's not any good and there's a lot of kind of snark directed at things like Best Exotic Marigold Hotel so okay hands on heart I haven't actually seen it doesn't seem to be a film that, that appealed to me because I am like kind of a bit of a hipster I guess Stuart, Stuart I've got a beard I, 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 I took my parents to see it uh, Best Marigold Hotel Went, went to the heart of Hipsterville. We actually watched it in Dalston. Yeah. And um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, but what... And again, it's going back to you, the point you made earlier about how good um, Jack O'Connell was in 71. Yes. What you got was a load of people who can act. So when there's this sort of breadth of emotion that you're meant to convey in, in, in drama, you had people who were more than capable of doing it. Yeah, without them having to be pretty or good looking. <laughs> about some of my favourite movies, you know. I mean, I, I really don't like. I really don't like the the current Hollywood strange obsession with ancient action heroes <clears throat> in films that people don't generally actually like, you know. Uh, but if I go back and look at some of the classic films, like something like The Wild Bunch. Mm. Which to me is like one of the greatest action movies ever made. But that is a film about a bunch of old guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. <clears throat> There's just been a narrowing of focus where every, you know, I think it's really hard on actors and particularly actresses where, you know, you get to a certain age and it's like your, your career's over, you know, and it's, it's a little bit easier for actors because they can play longer. But it's a weird kind of thing. And, and I, by the way, I, I've, I've seen your beard, uh, Stuart, and it's not a hipster beard. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Mr. Turner, I, I really liked, and I, I think uh, you know we should. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just uh, I think there's nothing wrong with uh, with embracing a, a wider audience, and uh, and that in, includes films uh, aimed at sort of what do they call it, the the, the golden, the, the, the great pound. pound, the great pound. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, yeah, I love Mr. Turner. I think it's a fabulous film. Right then, if you loved Mr. Turner, which one did you love more then that made your number one? Well, actually, let me do a quick, a quick count then. So your top five thus far has yeah. been number five, 71, number four, Calvary, mm. number three, Under the Skin, and number two, Mr. Turner. That's right. So what's well, the missing well, part of the five? 
My number one British film is also my number one film of the year. This is my favourite film of the year. I, and uh, this is a film that, that made me laugh the most. Uh, it made me cry. And it sent me <coughs> out of the cinema kind of walking on, on air. Uh, I, I just had such a good time with this film. And that is Pride. And it's kind of a strange thing to have... To, I mean, this is, this is a film that I think embraces a lot of a lot of things about film that British films of of the moment are sometimes slightly embarrassed about. It goes for the big emotional moment every time. Mm. You know, it's not afraid to to be sentimental. I don't think there's anything wrong with being sentimental. There's a difference. Now, when you say uh, sentiment to someone, they they think you mean mawkishness, which is not the same thing. Um, totally agree. Totally agree. And and actually, what the film's about? It's it's a it's a dramatised version of a true story about a small group of uh, um, lesbian and gay activists in London who decided uh, during the eighties, the height of Thatcherism, um, as the miners' strike was kicking off, that they wanted to support the miners as a gesture of solidarity for all sort of left wing groups, and they couldn't get the money accepted because. Um, the mainstream of the sort of union, the miners' union, didn't really want to be seen to be accepting money from uh, lesbian and gay groups, being that they were still very much from working-class rural communities um, who were perceived to be um, without homophobic. without gays and homophobic. <laughs> yeah, and by uh, 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 by chance, they they end up contacting a small. Uh, um, Chapter of the uh, of the union in a small Welsh mining town, and and it's a bad phone connection. They don't hear who they are. They just accept the money and invite them over. And then it's like, oh my god, you know, uh, what have we done? And the film is about these two sort of communities reaching an understanding, helping each other. And what you've actually got, and there's no spoiler because this is history. We all know what happened. That the miners' strike was lost. The 1980s also had the uh, the, the the rise of AIDS into a you know, into a national crisis. I can remember um, the Don't Die of Ignorance advertising campaign when I was a kid, and people were terrified. So that was, it was kind of a dark time for the lesbian and gay community. A lot of people were dying. Um, and you've also got the minor strikes I mentioned, which essentially was lost, and those communities uh, were really, really ravaged by the effects of, of Thatcher government's uh, economic policies. So this could be a victim narrative, it, it could be a dark and depressing film, but it's not. It, it's a triumphant film, and you come out punching the air from this movie, in a, but in a way that doesn't feel disingenuous, like they have uh, you know, manufactured a happy ending. It feels genuinely triumphant. Um, it's got a magnificent uh, screenplay uh, by Stephen Beresford, who's an actor, and I think this is his first produced screenplay, which is amazing. It's got an immense amount of characters, um, uh, there's not really a lead and some people don't have an awful lot of screen time but everyone gets a really good moment um, there's a particularly brilliant uh, performance in it by um, Andrew Scott who is the actor who played Moriarty in the TV Sherlock recently and um, okay. he plays uh, a character who, who's he's, he's the only one of the lesbian and gay activists who's actually Welsh and he's, yeah, yeah. He's, he'd left Wales when he was uh, much younger for 
uh, reasons of prejudice, and he doesn't really want to go back. And there's this scene where he sort of confronts the reasons for why he left Wales. That's really heartbreaking. You've also got, you know, Paddy Considine, and we mentioned before the the, the podcast how, how good he is in this film, and he turned. So about 10, 15 minutes into the film, he plays the, the local union organizer, and he delivers this speech in, a, uh, in a, a gay nightclub, which just rips your heart out right at the start of the film. Oh, my word, my word. I was, I was, I was crying at that point. But I think it's, you said it was a, the film's triumphant. I think it's, 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 it's a triumphant of, of will rather than a triumph of, triumph, a triumph of outcome. Because obviously, like you say, the minor strike yeah. wasn't won, yeah. and... Lots of people, lots of communities were destroyed, but this story was was about the will of people. Yeah, and it's not a story that I knew. No, not me. Well. Not you me. Know, despite you know, I'm about forty four, so you know, so I was going through my teenage years while all this stuff was going on, but I wasn't really aware of this story. And I grew up in Scotland, so um, Thatcherism has its own, you know, <laughs> negative connotations for me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, and you've got uh, such a great cast in this as well. Melda Stondon, Bill Nye, Dominic West, uh, Freddie Fox is really, really good in it in a little part. Um, and an American actor called Ben uh, Schnetzer, who plays the uh, kind of, sort of the lead. He's the leader of the, the lesbian and gay characters. And he's uh, really uh, terrific. Um, and, uh, and George Mackay is another another sort of kind of rising British actor. I was going to say, I think him, him and Jack O'Connell are going are almost like, it feels like they're going toe-to-toe at the minute. And, and obviously Jack's got a bit of a lead on them at the minute. Yeah, uh, well, we've got lots of British actors as well at the moment uh, who, who are really sort of coming up and, you know... I mean, I, I really enjoy... a really exciting time for... I mean, Joseph uh, Gilgun, who's in Pride, was... I mean, he's a favourite of mine from This Is England, sort of... Yes films and TV show, but I thought he was fantastic in it. Yeah, and he's got like a relatively, uh, well, not a difficult part, but <clears throat> he plays one of the guys who isn't, re- he, isn't, he hasn't really got any deep inner conflicts. No, he's, he's like the glue that holds it all together. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and he's, he's great in it as well. And it, it, uh, that's what I mean, it's such a good script, because although uh, people have only got a limited amount of screen time, they really make an impact. Mm. Um, I, I'm Staunton's really good in that. There's an actress whose name escapes me, unfortunately, who plays kind of the the uh, one of the younger wives who got, the one who went on to become a real Welsh MP, um, oh, and she's great in it too. I wish I could remember her name, but um, I just love Pride. I thought it was. Uh, <clears throat> I, tell, I mean, my, my one complaint. I've got to say, I think my one complaint, you know, th- is isn't to do with the film itself, but. How it was packaged to be sold. It well, was... I was actually going to just mention that in a way because um, I understand. I'm not a big fan of the kind of poster campaign they went with, mm. uh, which was much more in line with uh, selling it as kind of the next full Monty or with, um, without a doubt. Mm. And there's an element of which it, it is comparable to those movies and. And certainly, I, 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 I think, you know, the film did okay. It did pretty good, but it didn't do as good as I think maybe it should have done. And it does still have to overcome 
you know, some people still have prejudices about this this uh, subject matter, um, mm. and I th I think it will have uh, uh, legs when it comes to home entertainment release as well. Yeah, because th this is a movie that uh, I mean, there are films in my that we've just mentioned that I wouldn't recommend to everyone. You know, I mean, I would be under the skin. I'm not sure I would recommend that to my mum. You know, no, uh, no, went on my mum. She's she uh, has got plenty of good taste, but I'm not sure she would actually enjoy that particular movie. No, I don't. I don't. Tried, I just I think everyone would enjoy this film. You know, unless you know maybe you brought UK for something. <laughs> you know? And even I'm, then, you know, I think you might still enjoy it and think maybe you're being a bit of a tit and you should vote for somebody else. But to be um, honest, so I, mean, I, I thought, I mean, it, it, sadly, because, I mean, unlike, say, I mean, what year was um, Full Monty? Was that late, was that mid-late 90s, 97? Uh, I think it's a little bit earlier than that. I would, I would probably say about 90, 95, 96. Okay. See when that came out. So, so, so that has the kind of, it still has a closeness of when it's actually sort of put the period it's portraying. Whereas yeah. 2014, portraying the early 80s, is you've got 30 years there, and it feels really period. But also, one of the big things that hit me, and I think why when Paddy Constantine makes that speech, it dawned on me, even that early in the film, is that despite the fact that we're all connected by social media much easier than we are, there is a very... I mean, I think in society now, what this, I mean, I'm not sure it was the filmmaker's intention, but certainly what I took from it was we have lost a lot of that solidarity. We don't have it. We yes. we can get behind mealy mouth stuff like mm. getting getting the police to investigate Casey Hopkins, Casey Hopkins or something, <laughs> you know, or whatever it might be. But but yet we can't seem to we can't seem to see that you know we're being conned left, right, and centre. There was a, I mean on um, Charlie Brooker's uh, Newswipe for 2014, there was a little mini kind of Adam Curtis documentary in the middle of it. Yeah, which basically said, you know, look, we're we're being conned by we're almost being conned by the confusion of there being a lack of narrative now. Mm. Everything contradicts itself. Therefore, how the hell do you oppose contradiction? Yeah, yeah, and it hearts back to a time where you have, you know, you have kind of. Well, it, it sort of does, but in a weird kind of a way, Thatcher. You would expect Thatcherism to be the villain of this film, and it sort of, it's almost not the point of the movie at all. It's just no, kind of no, the no. background. It doesn't feel quite... I mean, Pride is a political film. It has to be a political film. It could not be a political film, but it doesn't feel as didactically political like it's, uh, you know, overtly go out and vote Labour after watching this. Um, Which I think says a lot, I think, I think says a lot more about Labour. Yeah. That's what I'm saying well, about... I, mean, I, think, I think those times have gone. I think back then... Yeah. Labour was a Labour movement. Yeah. Now you could put. But a piece it's still one of the one of the main things the film is about is that it, that was even that movement had its prejudices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To confront, confront. And I think what makes the film feel so triumphant is that you you watch it and you you come out at the end and you think, yeah, uh, yeah, let's let's solidarity, let's let's go out and agitate. You know, um, it kind of. I thought it was a hopeful film because mm. it, it kind of it made me feel that we we haven't moved on so far that uh, that we can have that sense of unity again. So um, I mean, yeah, admittedly, I mean, like I you... it, it made me laugh. It told me about something. It was educational about something I didn't really know about. 
that I thought I knew about, but, but I uh, clearly uh, didn't know this aspect of the story. Um, and uh, it, it made me feel good about life, despite being, uh, you know, something that could have been a really dark story and, and, uh, and, and a kind of a story about being a victim. And it isn't. It's, it's, uh, it refuses to be that. And I think and that's also, the beauty. It's just really entertaining and really funny. Yeah, and I think also that the the beauty of when you when you when you took in the, the story as they they presented to you, then you get told about individual characters within the story and what happened to them. And there's there's tragedy even in those closing moments, but there's also again ongoing triumph that people with and again go back to that word will really people with a will will, will find a way, and and they they clearly did. Against the backdrop of no, you can't. I mean, I think that the the actress you could remember the name of um, who ends up becoming an MP. I mean, the way she's portrayed in the beginning of the movie is this prejudice against her, yes, not acting like a typical housewife. So you think this is the eighties, not the eighteen eighties. It's the nineteen eighties. So even then, you still had a kind of nineteen fifties attitude to what the woman does and what the man does, and certainly in a working class mining town. Mm. So yeah, no, I, I, um, it's certainly one of my favourite films of the year. So I'll, uh, I applaud your choice of number one. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. So. We've got we've got a few we've got a few a handful of other films that are sort of that you, that yeah, you can I, mention I that are floating really float. kind of quickly. But I mean, I, I really think it has been a very strong year for <clears throat> for British film, and I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think partly we've seen the the uh, just the, the tail end of the previous um, film for regime. It's had a, a a change of top guard, and they've just produced some really interesting movies. Um, but also, and I should mention, my, my wife works in a marketing capacity for BBC Films. And I think BBC Films, who made Pride, mm. uh, well, part of the company that made Pride, have also been uh, becoming more adventurous lately. So we've got a lot, a lot of the British film industry is tied up now in, in television. Um, and that's been the, that way since, I guess, the, the heyday of sort of Palace Pictures. Mm. Because um, they kind of brought, I, th- I think it was it was Palace Pictures who really made Channel Four realise that they could release things at the cinema before they went on television, and that and, and it kind of kicked off. I mean, the British film industry, I think, was pretty much dead in the water uh, at that point after the collapse of Goldcrest, and it sort of got it going again. Mm. Um, so things I uh, have also seen that I mean, I could have made a top ten, I think. This year, that was just all British films. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and ultimately, those the, that top three films that I mentioned there are mm. my top three films. Uh, okay, anyway, okay, you know, so my my, my top three uh, films this year are, are British movies. Uh, so among the stuff that uh, my honourable mentions, uh, I have to mention uh, Paddington, mm-hmm. which is a really wonderful family movie, which may or may not have ended up in my top five if I hadn't such a had a horrendous experience watching the film. <laughs> With, what? Uh, is that uh, cinema? Uh, yeah, you know, just mobile phones, and uh, I kind of <laughs> lost. I, I lost it and nearly got in a fight at a kids' movie, which uh, I'm not proud of. I, um, I behaved very badly, but I have yet to meet someone who didn't kind of go, get on yet. But, you know, I don't encourage 
I don't want to carry such behaviour. But anyway, it sort of coloured that, that film, which was a shame, because it's really lovely. I don't know if you've seen Paddington. I've not seen Paddington yet, no. Well, you mentioned Wes Anderson, didn't you, earlier, <laughs> yeah. about Calvary. If you really want to see a film that feels like it has a Wes Anderson feel, Paddington. Really? Yeah, it, it, it has a really um, stylized feel to it that, that sometimes feels a little bit like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, uh, you know, it, yeah. It, well, it I guess it's the mighty, it's the mighty Bush director, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is Mighty Bush, and, which, which uh, is and very it feels well, like it, and it's got uh, various people who've who've been in secondary roles in, in Mighty Bush and his things appearing in this, and it, okay. you know, like Alice Lowe's in it, and people like that. Okay. Uh, in, in smaller parts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good. And uh, Ben Wishaw is just perfect as the voice of Paddington, which is a bit weird because he got a lot of criticism because it was originally going to be uh, Colin Firth. Colin Firth? Colin Firth. I'm, I'm always getting him and Peter Firth confused, but Colin Firth. And then he dropped out. And Ben Wishaw was maybe not everyone's first idea of the ideal voice of Paddington, but fits really well. Excellent. I'd also pick uh, DM Between Us 2, which I know a lot of people really hated, but it made me laugh, you know, and it, it's, we need uh, commercial films as well, you know, uh, in, in, in British films, to have a sustainable industry. Mm. Um, it's why I, I, I sometimes, well, we'll get to what I didn't like, um, but I do sort of arch an eyebrow where, where, you know, you get something, it never really happens. Every time a really crappy British film comes out, like, I don't know, Nativity 3, you get people screaming on social media, of, oh, my God, this is the British film industry sucks, look what they've made. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, they've made a shitty movie, but um, we kind of need the occasional crappy film that puts bums on seats to, you know, because that will bring, that bring, the, the theory is, right, that's how it should work, is that these films bring in cash and then that gets distributed and might fund, um, you know, films by Sally Potter or, or someone. Well, I, I'm, I'm certain that working title would tell you that's why they do Mr. Bean movies. Yeah, I mean, and, and it doesn't, I mean, I'm not letting them off the hook. There's no reason that these films need to be bad, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, if a bad film comes out, you should, you know, you should by all means give it a kicking. But don't, don't extrapolate this to the whole film industry sucks. It's just totally. silly. Totally. <clears throat> Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the Borderlands, which uh, is, um, I don't think we've had a very strong year horror-wise. Uh, I haven't seen an awful lot of, uh, of horror films at all. And um, I can't think of that many British ones that I've even missed. Uh, but I really enjoyed the Borderlands. It had, it, it had its rough edges, um, but it's a found footage horror film. That is genuinely frightening. I mean, it scared the absolute crap out of me. I don't know if you've seen it. No, totally. We've, we've been very supportive <laughs> on Britflix of uh, Borderlands. We had uh, Jen on the podcast when, 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 she, when she premiered at, um, at Fright Fest back in 2013. Obviously, yeah. it got released in the spring this year. Hmm. Yeah. <coughs> so, yes, no, um, very supportive of the movie. I, I really enjoyed that. I thought um, Locke was a really interesting sort of experiment. Uh, I, I like uh, Stephen Knight, the writer-director of that, a lot. Big fan of Peaky Blinders. Mm. Really excited to see World War Z 2, which he's writing. Wow, really? <laughs> he, yeah, he's writing it, and J.A. Bayona, the director of The Orphanage and The Impossible, is directing. Wow. So that's 
There's a combo. Uh, I mean, I liked World War Z. I'm one of, uh, a lot of people hated it, but I, I did enjoy it. But that is an enticing prospect to me. And Stephen Knight is, uh, uh, you know, he's kind of... One of the things we do quite well is we do kind of genre that people don't really recognize as genre. And Stephen Knight has been making, has been writing thrillers, basically. All his films are thrillers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote Eastern Promises, Dirty Pretty Things. Um, I was doing Peaky Blinders on television, which is great. Uh, and Locke, which is not, which is a little bit different. Oh, yeah, and he did uh, Hummingbird, the um, Jason Statham movie uh, with the nun. Cracker. Uh, and, and Locke is basically a, a, an entire movie that is just Tom Hardy driving. <laughs> driving and having uh, a series of telephone conversations about cement. And that doesn't sound like the blueprint for an exciting movie, but... No, I'm gutted I didn't see it. It's actually quite mesmerising. And no. Hardy is he's absolutely amazing in this. He's such a great actor. Um, I can't wait to see Mad Max. Uh, I just I think he's a really exciting guy. Um, he does this kind of Welsh accent in this that some people have been critical of, but I don't know what they're talking about. He just he sounds like Richard Burton. It's great. Yeah, I can just listen to him doing that Welsh voice for hours. So uh, yeah, Locke. I, I didn't like it maybe as much as some people. I thought it was maybe more of a, a an experiment in sort of style and technique. Hmm. Uh, uh, than it was uh, a totally successful movie, but it's well worth watching. Um, I mean, uh, my, so last, um, my last sort of honourable mention is a, um, a little microwave film, one of the Microwave London films called Lilting, okay. um, by a first-time director, Hong Kao, which is Ben Wishaw again. And uh, Ben Wishaw plays a guy who's, uh, whose partner has, has died, and... Uh, he is trying to connect with his uh, partner's mother, who's paid by Pei Pei Chang, you know, the uh, kind of legendary Chinese uh, actress who was in all these uh, 60s, 70s martial arts movies. Right. And what she doesn't know is that her son son was gay, and, you know, Ben Wishaw was was his lover, and uh, she doesn't know this, so she kind of, or she, maybe she knows this, but she's in denial. And he's trying to kind of keep the memory of his lover alive through just trying to be nice to his uh, his kind of irascible Chinese mother, um, whilst also maintaining the illusion that he was just his her son's best friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's been moved into sheltered accommodation. Um, and she doesn't really understand why, and she's got a lot of sort of pent-up anger. And it's it's this kind of, it's sort of, what he does is he uh, he sets her up with a with an older gentleman who's also staying in these this, this housing, who's played by Peter Bowles, who's terrific. Uh, and it's a kind of a three-hander, really, between them. And it's just a really lovely film, but it's, but it's made in a uh, slightly, again... Another film that, that reminded me of Nick Rogue and the way that it was edited in a slightly non-linear way where it mixed up and you'd have characters exit a scene in the present and then come back into the same scene, but it would be in the past, but without any sort of cuts. It's slightly theatrical, but it, it's a very low budget, but it, but it was really beautifully made, a really impressive a debut and um, some wonderful performances. Where did, so, where did you see that film? I mean, that's one that's passed me by I completely. I saw that. It, opened at, uh, it did actually get a release. Um, hmm. Uh, but it opened the BFI Flair, the, the retitled Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. Oh, okay, okay. 
and then it's 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 got a limited release, and then it, it did what it, what happens with a lot of very low budget films is they sort of tour around, you know, and do one off screenings at art houses. Yeah, uh, I think it's available on DVD now, and it's well worth checking out. So it's, no, no, it's it sounds, sounds intriguing. I didn't see that. My big regret. Uh, that I didn't see this year, which I have to catch up on, is Frank. Yeah, uh, no, me too. Me too. I'm really, I, I, and especially there's been sort of a sort of a latent sort of love for it that I've I've noticed. Hmm. Well, I, I'm really interested. I remember seeing Frank Sidebottom at Reading Festival, the first time I went to, and and him being on John Peel all the time. So I'm intrigued, and and uh, I love Michael Fassbender and the idea of him doing a whole film with a giant paper mache head on. I just find perverse to the, in a way that, that uh, it's just funny. The idea of it is, is amusing. Um, I also have a couple of things that I saw at the London Film Festival that are coming out this year that okay. I recommend to people, one of which is The Duke of Burgundy, right. which is... The third film by Peter Strickland, who previously made <coughs> Bavarian Sound Studio, which made it right best. It did. And, um, I always want to call it Agnes Varga, Carolyn Varga. <laughs> and um, the Duke of Burgundy is kind of a, it's a weird, uh, Duke of Burgundy is a very strange film. It's kind of like a, a Euro sleeve, it's a throwback to sort of Euro art sleeves films of the 1970s. Right, uh, and it's it's like part Alan Robb Grilly and part Jess Franco, and it's, really, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's 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 very Peter Strickland. It's this mix of high and low art. And, okay, uh, it's basically about a sadomasochistic lesbian relationship, and it's very kind of intoxicatingly sexy, but without any explicit nudity. But in a way, it, because it's about S&M, so it's not about kind of, uh, you know, conventional nude scenes. It's about kind of other weird, fetishy stuff. Yeah. And it's got an amazing soundtrack by the band Cat's Eyes, which is a side project of uh, Farris's uh, uh, Rotter from the Horrors, uh, which oh, is okay. just great. And the whole film has this incredible... It just it looks like a Jess Franco film from the seventies, like when he had maybe a bit of money. It's beautiful, uh, and it has this kind of hazy, milky sort of um, overexposed look that, that films sort of had in the seventies. It's it's a very very strange film, and it's funny as well in a way that I don't think Peter Strickland's films have been acknowledged for the humour before. Uh, but this one I thought was, was, was very humorous. I have no idea if there's an audience for it. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, doesn't it? I mean, again, a bit like Under the Skin, it doesn't sound. He's a director. He, he, most most <coughs> of left of field directors come out with, with their big sort of statement of intent and then engage in a process of gradually becoming more and more mainstream and building their audience mm. whilst they get more money. Now, Strickland. Since uh, Catelyn Varga has got more and more, the bigger and bigger budgets each time, but seems to be engaged in a process of refining his audience into <laughs> an utter. You know, I, I think basically a three or more, more films down the line, there'll be like one person left <laughs> still getting what's on about. So I, 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 I hesitate to recommend it for everyone, but if you, if you like, you know, um, that weird kind of. And, 
the fringe where art house meets exploitation, um, then it's great and it's beautiful and it's got this great soundtrack. And the other one uh, I'd like to pick is uh, Carol Morley's The Falling, which uh, was also on at the London Film Festival. And that stars Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones. <coughs> uh, and it's another... God, I, I, Another film that feels like it, that has that seventies Nick Rogge sort of a feel. It's a, it's it's very strange. This film. It's a I think it's in the sixties or very early seventies. It's about a outbreak of fainting, like almost like a viral outbreak of fainting that goes through a uh, a girls only uh, school in the wake of a, of a tragedy and. Uh, there's uh, an element of it where, if you do the plot synopsis, it sounds like it, like a kind of Village of the Dam style horror movie, but it's, it doesn't play out that way. It's it's a very strange, slightly obtuse, again ni- slightly niche, I think, uh, film with a with a weird kind of a disturbing atmosphere. I think if you liked Under the Skin, then The Falling and Duke of Burgundy. Uh, are films that you might be interested in. No, no, I was going to say, I feel, I feel like you've at least recommended two films for me, if, if not the yeah. audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, hopefully 2015 will continue. So <clears throat> that's all been very, very positive. So I guess uh, it's about time I kick something's teeth in, yeah? I was going to say, you know, let's, I mean, it, it seems it seems inappropriate, but we, we have, the, <laughs> there, is, there is light and dark to all art, <laughs> So where, where was where was the dark in your mind this year? Well, you know, oh, uh, right, okay. I I haven't seen Nativity Three, but I did see Mrs. Brown's Boys the movies, and yes, it, it is it is awful, right? But you know, it's kind of. I mean, what's the point of uh, picking Mrs. Brown's Boys the movie? Really, uh, I mean, it's like what I was saying before. I mean, we need our um, successful kind of crappy films as much as we need our not successful pieces of artistic excellence. So the, the film I'm actually going to pick was just one that just irritated the absolute hell out of me. is Cuban Fury, uh, which is a kind of... It's supposed to be a romantic comedy set in the world of uh, Latin dancing, um, and it's uh, kind of a star vehicle for, <clears throat> for Nick Frost. Um, you know, Simon, Simon Pegg's wingman and, yeah. and foil, and uh, I just thought it was ghastly um, from beginning to end. I, I just don't know what was going on with this movie. I mean, it's supposed to be a rom-com, uh, and you've got Nick Frost and Rashida Jones from uh, Parks and Recreation, which is a show I love. <clears throat> and uh, an interesting game to play watching this film is to imagine just how many days they had Rashida Jones for. Because although it's a rom-com, she just—they're <laughs> barely in it. They actually—they resolve the romance during the end credits in a series of still photographs. That's how badly put together this film is. Oh dear. Um, Nick Frost is really trying the patience in this. I'm, I'm not convinced he is leading man material. You know, uh, I, I think this is a movie which did something that, that really annoys me is that it, it came out, and I didn't see it for months after it came out, but my impression was that uh, it had got some okay-ish reviews from a lot of, like, blogger people. Mm. And it's dreadful. I mean, it's absolutely it's rubbish, this movie. Um, and I think it was just coasting along in this kind of fanboy goodwill um, 
because of everyone loves Nick Frost and everyone loves the films he's made with Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, and also, it's really... It, I don't know who it was really aimed at because it, it feels like a kind of soft 12 certificate <coughs> fluffy movie that someone has cynically made to market to people's mums. Yeah, you know, you've got your salsa dancing, it's a bit strictly, all that sort of stuff. But it's got a whole secondary plot in it where, uh, with Chris O'Dowd, who plays um, a guy who uh, works with Nick Frost's character, who becomes kind of a love rival for Rashida Jones. And his character is repulsively misogynistic. And his dialogue is so excessively gross that it instantly pushes the film into 15 certificate territory and means that you would never recommend it to your mum. Because it's, it's horrible stuff. You know, it's not <laughs> funny. I don't know what the point of it was. And then there's a... Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I just thought it was terrible. Well, it's also another character played by Rory Kinnear. Right. Nick Frost's best mate, and he's also kind of repulsively gross and sexist, and in a way that's just, I don't know, it's, it's not even like Viz, it's, it's, not, it's not even, it's more like Dapper Laughs, um, and I just don't know what they thought they were doing with this movie, because it's, it's clearly not made people who are trying to be misogynistic, but it just has this nasty sort of an edge to it. Um, Interestingly, Sean, I never, I never knew until we, we were talking about it, is it's co-written by Nick Frost, this. Well, he came up with the original idea, yeah. I just, I don't know what was going on with it. And it looks terrible. I mean, it looks rubbish. It looks like bad TV. Um, you know, uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie, is, is a pretty terrible film with a lot of objectionable stuff in it. But it does have moments where it tries to be a movie. You know, it tries to, be a, to do something a little bit bigger. And this just feels so small scale. And that, I think, is where... Uh, the sort of British film that I really don't like, where it just feels like it has no ambition and uh, ends up being something that feels like it ought to be on at Christmas on ITV2, you know? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, there's a long history of this. I, I remember going, somehow I, I ended up at the, uh, the, the Leicester Square star-studded premiere of Ant and Dec's Alien Autopsy, which was a truly horrible experience. I would say key even Fury, I would, I would place it in terms of quality pretty much on a par with Ant and Dec's Alien Autopsy. It's that bad. Okay, okay. Well, let, let me try and pull you out of this trough that you've, 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 uh, you've dug for yourself. Um, <laughs> and what, and, and give it, and as, as I like to do with everyone that comes on the podcast, um, now you've made a lot, I mean, you've, you've been very, you've been very uh, generous with your recommendations of certainly what you liked about this year, what you can, the couple of films you see coming. Um, hmm. But in terms of British films that are kind of, you know, that, that are oft, oft forgotten, maybe classics that mm. maybe have, you know, academically are now classics, but people just don't watch them anymore, or just a film that deserves more kudos than it ever got, um, mm. is there anything that you would, you would give yes. us? Yes. Um, this, it, it might seem a little bit perverse to pick as, as a, an obscurity of a film by Paul and Pressburger, because mm. they're t- titanic figures. But I'm gonna anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I'm banging the drum for British film. I love British film. Some of my favourite movies are British, <clears throat> and I think we have a, a really strong film culture that, that goes back to <clears throat> the beginning of the medium in this country. Um, but I think we, we we have this kind of inferiority complex, but where we just don't believe that we're any good at it. And despite the fact that, you 
know, the Americans are always telling us that our technicians are the best, you know, <clears throat> and they're coming over here, and they have been for, for decades to make big movies at British film studios because we have really amazing uh, technical expertise in this country. You don't have to watch something like Gravity, all the special effects. I mean, that is technically a British film. Mm. <clears throat> so I, uh, I know that, you know, Powell and Pressburger are, are titanic figures, but to me, I, I, I think it, it's, it's tragic to me that they're not taught in school. You know, the, the, you don't learn about British film in school. You, you, you just don't look at it um, at all. It's not in the national curriculum. It, it, it doesn't have much impact. But I think it should be, because I think it's part of our culture. Mm. And uh, there is a period during, uh, around about World War II, where, where Paul and Pressburger made um, <coughs> about five or six movies, which are all stone-cold classic films. Um, many of these are very, very well, well-known movies, like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and... Um, I know where I'm going, which is uh, which is slightly more obscure but also good, and uh, Matter of Life and Death, which is most people's sort of like big sort of favourite one. It's the, it's uh, the only one I've, sadly, it's the only one I've seen of theirs. Okay, well, in in a way, to me though, the the their quintessential movie is A Canterbury Tale, which is the film I'm going to pick, which was a film they made in 1944, so okay. it actually came out <clears throat> after the end of World War II, and it was the first of their run of movies that wasn't actually a success. Um, but it was originally made with a propaganda attention of, of trying to make a film that kind of brought uh, America and, and, and Britain sort of together and created a sense of friendship, because there's a lot of antagonism about GIs being stationed in the, in the UK. Yeah. And it's a really, it's a really weird, it's a really weird film. It's a very strange film. <clears throat> Essentially, you've, you've got three characters who arrive one night in a station in, in a small town. One is a, a, a British uh, officer. Uh, then there's an American serviceman who was played by an actual serving uh, a sergeant, uh, Sergeant John Sweet. He was, you know, serving at the time. Yeah. And a, uh, a land girl who uh, was played by Sheila Sim. And they just happened to meet, they, I think they missed their taxi or something. And as they're walking into town, <clears throat> they get sort of attacked by a, a, a mysterious guy who's running around pouring glue in women's hair in this village. And they set about sort of investigating who is the mysterious glue man. <laughs> uh, and, and this, it, I mean, this, this sounds like some kind of, you know, quote a quickie uh, Saturday morning serial plot. Um, they quickly kind of discover who it is. It's this local magistrate who then reveals to them unrepentantly that he is uh, trying to take attention away from uh, chasing skirt and onto his sermons and, and other things. And all of them end up traveling into uh, Canterbury in a way that he then links. Uh, there's a little soliloquy where he, ex- he explains Chaucer uh, and the pilgrims. Uh, journeys to them, and each of them then splits off and has a kind of a personal epiphany, and it's, it, it moves from being this little film that feels like it's going to be some kind of, you know, small Saturday morning comedy, to becoming this meditation on religion and spiritualism and the, the nature of Albion, and it's, it's just 
the most crazy film, and it has something that I think not just Michael Powell and, and Emmerich Pressburger, but a lot of uh, sort of English artists who I, I really admire too, where, where they it connects to uh, a kind of pagan. It's not exactly a secular movie, but it has a kind of spiritual feel that connects to a kind of pre-Christian <clears throat> pagan England. I think you get it if you read a lot of Alan Moore, you get it a bit in Grant Morrison, um, all those sort of comic writers, and uh, maybe even a bit, a bit in Nigel Neal. He's kind of dealt with similar things in like, Quite a Mass in the Pit. Now, that's a little bit different in <clears throat> their style, but... Um, yeah, this kind of tale I, I, I could almost imagine having been uh, written or inspirational to Alan Moore on something like Big Numbers. Uh, there's this sense of this little story which reveals something vast underneath, and, but it's all done with a real lightness of touch. It's very, very funny. It's very charming. And it has an ending in Canterbury Cathedral that is just visually spectacular in the way that Powell um, could really be. I mean, to me, he is one of the finest... Uh, filmmakers in in the medium period ever, and and that's what frustrates me about uh, our attitude to our own film culture is that actually we have uh, our little country has produced some of the greatest film filmmakers of all time. You know, we've produced David Lean, we've produced Alfred Hitchcock. Um, you know, now we've got people like Danny Boyle who uh, are doing world class stuff, and all the movies I've mentioned from this top five of this year. They're not just good British films, they're just good films. I mean, they, they hold their own against the best work being produced uh, in world cinema this year, mm. you know. And I think, you know, it, it goes in waves where there's a country that's kind of producing really cool stuff, and a few years ago it was, uh, you know, South Korea. But, you know, right now, it's like it's the UK. Excellent. Well, that's, that's exactly what... Uh, if I could have handpicked the for you to, way for you to conclude the podcast, <laughs> that would be the way to conclude a Britflix.com podcast review of 2014. Well, look, Stuart, thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous. Um, You're welcome. I've very much enjoyed it, even though I'm starting to lose my voice now. <laughs> if you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes, and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.